And I just want to take a second to just uh, celebrate God's work through Chaz Glick, member of our church, uh, who was baptized uh, just a little over a year ago and having the privilege of walking with Chaz. He's prayed for uh, Jeff and, and sought to intentionally invest in his life. And um, Jeff is a believer now. And so praise God uh, for how he uses his people as they seek to really live sent lives. And that's the desire uh, that God has for all of us, that we would see him working in and through us in that kind of way. I want to invite you uh, to a learning opportunity that'll take place on Wednesday, June 23rd and June 30th. Uh, That will be uh, Three Circles Evangelism training. Uh, that'll be happen online via Zoom. I'm going to lead that time, and I'll, I'll talk about a method, a way of sharing the gospel that's very simple, and also we can have dialogue about may, maybe questions you have or objections you think you'll face or that you do face as you seek to share uh, your faith with other people. Maybe you already have a method, that's fine. Maybe you want to learn another method, but if you don't have a way of sharing the gospel, you cannot say uh, that this church has not given you an opportunity to be able to to share your faith, and that is our desire uh, in doing this. And really the desire, again, is that all of us would see stories like Jeff's taking place in our life as we seek to live our lives on mission. I believe as a church, we are really in a place where God is doing a great work, has done a great work, and we can see some pretty amazing things happen. I, I, this weekend actually marks me being the pastor of this church for three and a half years. Uh, depending on your eschatology, some people believe there's such a three thing as a three and a half year tribulation, and some of you may feel like that as me being the pastor of this church. Uh, but uh, the reality is, in that three and a half years, I've come to know uh, who we are uh, and really where we're at, and we really are at a place where we have to change the way we think about some things. We have to see uh, a mind shift, mindset shift take place uh, in order to really be the church that seizes the opportunities that lay before us to see story after story of Jeff's and story after story of Anchor Church and story after story of supporting uh, missions and and local outreach uh, and beyond. And so the timing uh, is perfect for us to uh, come to the place we are in Mark's gospel because the things we are discussing over the next few weeks talk about why it's really hard for a church to see this kind of stuff happen. If you have a Bible, turn to Mark chapter two, uh, and I'm gonna read from verse 18 through 22 this morning. Uh, While we're finding our place, I just wanna say to you, if you are new to our church, uh, that we are so glad to have you with us as our guest, whether that's on campus or watching online this morning, and we want to know who you are. Please text the word connect to the number that's on the screen and one of our staff members will follow up with you this week and we'd be happy to answer any questions that you might have. I'm gonna read Mark chapter two, verse 18 through 22. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, 
and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Pray with me. God, we again rejoice in Jeff's life in you. And we rejoice in the life that many of us have found in you. And God, I pray that today our ears would be attentive, our hearts would be attentive to your word. God, that I would decrease, that you would increase, and that you would speak to us in this time. And God, that we would be people led by your spirit in total commitment to your word. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So what I want to do here before I really get into this text is I want to set up kind of where we are at when it comes to the idea of religion. Our culture has a love-hate relationship with religion. The modern-day critique of religion is that, essentially, while religion is good, it is also bad. There's a great admiration of the positive things that religion brings about, the values that religious people often have or share, the, the focus on parenting that is often passed down with the religious and the generosity that comes from religious people. But there's also a distaste about the negative aspects of religion in our culture, the hypocrisy that exists amongst religious people, the judgment that comes from religious people, and the prejudice that almost every religion seems to have towards some type of people. And so many in our culture are left mixed, excuse me, left with mixed feelings about whether religion is really good for the world. Now, it wasn't always this way. In fact, right until the 1900s, religion was generally viewed as good in every society. It was the norm that people were religious. The religion might vary, but people were religious. Then around the middle of the 20th century, after we you know, exited the time of the Great Wars, there was a shift that took place in Western culture specifically, where leaders, academic leaders, cultural leaders, began to predict a future without religion. They essentially said, we will outgrow this by the 21st century. Many leading philosophers, cultural leaders believe religion will be almost obsolete in Western society by around the year 2000. They, they said that religion existed because of the mysteries that exist, and we pretty much have figured out all the mysteries, so there's not really a reason for religion. So they began to say religion is just bad. It's not necessary, and it's bad, because intellectually, people who are religious seem to have their learning and common sense checked at the door of their sanctuary or their synagogue or their mosque. And socially, religion causes division. And then personally, if you're religious, your religion might cause you to miss out on what makes you happy. It might cause you to miss out on living 
the life you want. Now, we got here because of three critiques of religion. Really, the, the modern-day problem of religion is rooted in the critiques of three men, Sigmund Freud, Karl Marx, and Friedrich Nietzsche. These are the three modern-day critiques of religion. Now, I want to cite my sources here for this that I've learned from a lot over the years, J.P. Moreland, Tim Keller, Peter Hicks, and my education at the Baptist College of Florida and Liberty Baptist Theological Seminary. So Sigmund Freud was an Austrian born to Jewish parents. He lived in a Catholic world, and he became popular in the early 1900s. Now, Freud observed how children related to their parents, and almost all of his philosophy was based upon this. There's actually a story he tells of a girl who did something wrong, something that her parents said was wrong, and she wanted her parents to find out what she did. So she made sure that her parents found out what she did wrong. And he says that this is why we have religion, because we have this psyche, we have this guilt, and religion is our way of dealing with that inherent guilt we have for doing things that we're told are wrong. So Freud says that religion is self-justification. Here's a quote from Sigmund Freud. The different religions have never overlooked the part played by the sense of guilt in civilization. What is more, they come forward with a claim to save mankind from the sense of guilt, which they call sin. And obviously, he's pretty clearly addressing Christianity. So, so this idea here is that we are religious to justify living how we want to live. If you've ever seen the movie The Godfather, that's not a pastoral endorsement, but many of you who are my age or older have seen the movie The Godfather. The ending of the movie a baptism is taking place of a baby, a christening of a baby, while they're ordering the, the execution of five different people. And so you see in The Godfather an extreme illustration of how people kind of live these lives they want to live, and the religion keeps them feeling like they're okay, like they're justified. And so we're paying, essentially, to justify our actions, to get rid of the guilt for living how we want to live. And this either produces smug hypocrites or it produces people who live in insecurity and fear because of the guilt they have or a combination of those two. Karl Marx lived before Freud in the 1800s, but his ideas began to really catch on in the early to mid 1900s. Marx observed the classes and how the classes struggled. And he thought it was best for common ownership because of this. I mean, he's the father of communism. Religion, he discovered or he thought, was how one would deal with the pain or the justification that came with the class they were part of. So Marx said that religion is societal justification. He famously said religion is the opium of the masses, that it's a painkiller that makes those feelings associated with your society, the guilt you have with your society, go away. And so he said that people used religion to eliminate guilt from the way their society lives. He would say that higher societies would say, we can enslave people or we can fight other nations because of God. And they, who don't believe what we believe, are evil or their ways are lesser morally, so we are justified 
for going to war or conquering them. He would say that lower societies, lower classes, would justify not trying to be better by saying, we don't need to do anything but live right, and ultimately God will reward us. Historically in America, we actually see traces of these kind of things in the different races and their religion and how they use God in the class they are part of. Essentially what is said, according to Marx, is that a society says our societal pattern is right and our religion gets rid of our guilt for fighting or for not fighting. And that religion produces injustice through oppression and through apathy. The last critique is Friedrich Nietzsche. He also lived before Freud. He was unsuccessful while he was alive. He went crazy at the end of his life. But his ideas began to catch on, and he became the hero of socialist, the Nazi party, and fascist. His attack was not only on religion, but on anyone who claimed to understand truth at all. He actually said, any claim of truth is motivated by selfishness. Anyone with answers essentially is arrogant, he would say. He said that we are all motivated by the will to power and it controls our actions and that is where religion comes into play. He said that religion is a power trip. Religion and truth claims associated with religion are a great tool to justify the actions of those who are motivated by ego. And so this produces a master and slave mentality by choice. Now, others have certainly spoke out against religion over the years. It influenced even critiques on religion. But these three are really the source of the modern Western problem and critique of religion. And I want to suggest these critiques should not and cannot be rejected because they're valid. They're absolutely correct that religion is used for self-justification, societal justification, and a power trip. And when I say that, I don't mean all religious, but it is certainly an accurate statement. There, there are those who use religion for self-justification, societal justification, and a power trip. Freud, Marx, Nietzsche had all seen religion used in these ways, and it is still used in these ways. There are people, perhaps in this room, perhaps watching online this morning, who go to church, they pay God, they pay the church, they even help the needy some, and the guilt associated with living however they want to live beyond that feels gone. I feel good about the life I live because I do these religious things. Additionally, we have societies who say God is on our side, so we are justified in doing what we want to do. This is one of the problems with radical Islam, and that they would say God is behind us doing these things. If you investigate our history and you look at some of the people who believed in manifest destiny, this is certainly part of the problem. God was on our side, so we're justified in doing this. We also see people who use religion as a power trip 
or begin at some point to use religion as a power trip. That's why cults exist, but also corruption in the church. Just recently, a lot of information has come out about Hillsong Church, which is one of the largest churches in all of the world, and the culture of abuse and celebrity culture and power that existed in their leadership, specifically the New York campus. Paige Patterson, who is the former president of the Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, more and more information is coming out about him and the way he led and how his ego influenced. And time and time again, we see instances of abuse by leaders in the church. So the modern critiques of religion have successfully torn apart religion. But the modern critiques of religion also tear themselves apart. The modern critiques of religion also tear themselves apart. Let's start with Freud's. He says religion is self-justification. So since religion is self-justification, don't hold back. Follow all of your desires. What he's just done is he said, I'm justified for following my desires because I'm not religious. But you can't in an argument say, the reason I don't believe in this is because it's used for self-justification. So now I've justified myself. That's an illogical argument. Either way, what you're doing here is you're using God or you're getting rid of God to justify getting rid of guilt. Self-justification cannot be the basis for something being false when the result is self-justification. Marx says religion is rooted in societal justification. And so then he says, so we're right, the religious are wrong, so our society is justified. Marx's societies we're the greatest example of this. And the oppression of people because of their philosophy, Lenin, Stalin, just to name a few, they justified to make common anyone else is wrong. You can't say religion is bad because it's used to justify a society to further the justification of your society. Nietzsche, he said, any truth claim is a power trip. Is there anything more egotistical than to say every truth claim besides mine is a power trip? Because when you say no one is right, you're saying no one is right except me because I'm right in saying no one's right. So here's what happened. People said religion is going to be done by around 2000. And if you grew up in the 50s and 60s, this is what was being taught. This is what was starting to infiltrate our schools. This is certainly what was becoming popular academically. This is why we began to see even distancing of education into private sectors and Christian schools, uh, the, the explosion of them, because this was being taught. Well, then the Jesus movement happened in the 70s, and so we kind of went away from that. But then we kind of got back into it with the technological boom and the, the economic boom of the 80s and 90s. I went to school when I was in the 80s and 90s, went to grade school. And I remember, I grew up in a conservative town with a lot of churchgoers, but I remember teachers basically saying, hey, religion is unintelligent and our society is progressing past religion. But this has not happened. Our society has not progressed past religion. And today it has caused somewhat of a problem because while we, our culture, have learned that religion is bad, there is an inexplicable draw to the spiritual. A writer for the New Yorker 
wrote in an article about a decade ago, we have come to hate religion, but be haunted by faith. Many have come to hate religion, but be haunted by faith. Now, she is a social elite. She lives in Manhattan. She's educated. She's successful. She's at the top of the social ladder. And what she says is that she and her friends who are on top, she doesn't say they're on top, but who are on top have tried stuff. They've tried achievement. They've tried love. They've tried therapy. And they still feel empty. And the only thing they haven't tried is religion. But religion is bad. It's bad intellectually. It's bad socially. It's bad personally. So she and many others are stuck hating religion but being haunted by faith, being haunted by the spiritual. A few years ago, Larry King interviewed a famous philosopher named Lady Gaga. (laughs) And in the interview, she said something insightful. She said, I want your stupid love, love. No, that's not what she said. (laughs) She did say that, but not in the interview. Here's what she said. I struggle with my feelings about the church in particular in terms of religion. I'm very religious. I was raised Catholic. I believe in Jesus. I believe in God. I'm very spiritual. I pray very much. But at the same time, there is no one religion that doesn't hate or speak against or be prejudiced against another racial group or religious group or sexual group. For that, I think religion is also bogus. So I suppose you could say I'm a quite religious woman that is very confused about religion. And I dream and envision a future where we have a more peaceful religion or a more peaceful world a more peaceful state of mind for the younger generation, and that's what I dream for. Now, I'm not saying that everything Lady Gaga said here is right, or this author for the article in The New Yorker is right, but these are cultural leaders. These are influencers, and their feelings are indicative of many in our society. Now, here, most of you probably don't feel this way, But there are some of you who do. You're wrestling through this. You might be having what we would call a crisis in your faith. But I know that you have children and friends and grandchildren and co-workers who are wrestling with this as well. Now, the, the more modern answer to all this is, okay, well, everybody's right. We'll just say everybody's right. Well, what that really means then is everybody else is wrong besides you. Because if, I'm, if I believe, hey, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, there's no way to the Father except, you know, by him. Everybody else is going to hell. And you say, well, everybody's right. Well, you're saying I'm wrong. You, you're not saying I'm right. Because I've said very clearly this. And, and you can apply that to other religions as well. And, and I would say this. If you say everyone is right, that works in a gated community. That works maybe in Niceville. But tell that to people in Northwest Africa who are being forced into slavery by radical Muslims. Tell that to people in India who still are oppressed and experience social injustice because of the Hindu caste system, and so forth and so on. 
And there is the issue. We have a problem believing in God that is used to justify all of these things. And you are told to believe in God by different people. And you see the hypocrisy, judgment, ignorance that comes with it. Maybe you've even experienced it in this church at some point. And so you don't want to be a part of religion. Here is what I would say to you. Good. It is good that you feel this problem with religion. But you wonder why you can't shake this feeling, this draw of faith to the spiritual. And I would say this, it's because, in fact, you were created for faith, not religion. You were created for faith, not religion. And before Freud, and before Marx, and before Nietzsche, and before the New Yorker, and before Lady Gaga, Jesus tackled this issue head on. In Mark chapter 2, verse 18, he said, excuse me, he was asked, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. Now, let me, let me explain something to you about the Old Testament. The Old Testament only required that you fast one day a year. That was the day of atonement. There was not a requirement to fast beyond that. Now, you should fast, according to the Old Testament, if you are led by God to fast. Fasting in the Old Testament is connected to mourning, not the mourning, like when you're, you know, mourning for something. Repentance and intense prayer, when you're seeking direction for your nation or your family or whatever it might be. But a tradition was established over the years by the religious crowd that you should fast two days a week, Mondays and Thursdays. You might avoid certain people on Mondays and Thursdays because they would be kind of hangry. We still kind of avoid some people on Mondays you know, when we go to work with them. Now, this tells us that the disciples, Matthew tells us, that the disciples of John specifically asked him this question, saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, the disciples of John are the good guys. They didn't force or judge people, and they're fasting probably in expectation of the Messiah. They think the Messiah's coming. John was saying that. God never commanded them to fast this much. It was man's decision to implement this practice. But for the Pharisees, it had become the law. It had become religion. Even though the scriptures they were familiar with warned against the mentality that now was pervasive amongst them. In the prophet Isaiah and prophet Zechariah, there are warnings that fasting without a repentant heart and right conduct were in vain. Many believe that rigorous following, however, of this fast two days a week was a foolproof way of earning God's favor and blessing. But why, teacher, Aren't your disciples fasting? Why aren't you obeying our laws? Why aren't you obeying our religion? They asked Jesus this. Verse 19, and Jesus said to them, can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Now, a wedding ceremony back then, it's a big deal. You would go and you would get the bride from her place. You would bring her to the groom's place. They would, they would have the wedding ceremony. They would have the marriage feast. Then 
they would go and consummate the marriage and then come back to hang out with their parents. I mean, that's, that's how they did it. They would celebrate after the marriage was consummated. Kids, your parents can explain what that means to you. And then they would celebrate good times. Come on. I mean, there would be wine. There would be a feast. There would be a party. And Jesus is saying, I'm the groom. The church is the bride. I'm here. It's not a time of mourning. It's a time of celebration. Now, Jesus isn't against fasting. He would fast. He would assume here that his disciples would fast again. But when Jesus is answering this question, he knows where this question is coming from. He knows where the Pharisees' mindset is. He knows the deeper issues, and and he addresses it. He goes on to say in verse 21, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. There's two images here, an unshrunk cloth sewed on an old garment, which when an unshrunk cloth is first made wet, it will become, it will, it will tear. And so there will, it will shrink. And so if it's patched on this garment, it would actually make a bigger hole. So you wouldn't do that. And then the wine and the wineskins, they would actually store their wine in animal skins, which were, you know, used to hold wine. And while the wine fermented, they would expand it. Historians note that these are clearly not Baptist historians, that fermentation would take two to four months, the wine would be 12% alcohol, and then the skins would stretch to the max, resulting in loss to stretchiness. If you don't get the Baptist joke, then just Google it. And so they put, if you put new wine into old wineskins, they would burst, and the wine would spill, and the skins would be destroyed. Now, the old wine is better, but the point here is that the new wine cannot be contained by the new wineskins. You need new, I mean, by the old wineskins. You need new and new for it to be preserved. If you put new wine into old wineskins, they burst. So you need to put new wine into new wineskins. And if you put a new garment, new cloth onto an old garment, it's not going to work either. You can't rip a piece of it off. And this is what Jesus is saying. Your framework doesn't work for what God is doing here. You cannot take a little bit of what I'm teaching and patch up your old system. It does not work. Now, I want to go bigger picture real quick so you understand what this means to you, but you got to understand this first. I'm going to quote Danny Aiken, the president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. The gospel of Jesus Christ did not add to Judaism or reform it. The gospel fulfilled it and superseded it. The gospel of Jesus Christ did not add to Judaism or reform it. The gospel fulfilled it and superseded it. There's value in learning from the Old Testament, but there is not value in being bound by the Old Testament. There's not. It existed to set up the new covenant, the New Testament. There's a lot of people who operate with these dual covenant theology. That's actually a thing where they follow both covenants. The new wine of Christianity cannot be contained by the old wineskins of Judaism. It's a mixing of the old and new. It's, a, it's, it's not that. It's a fulfillment of the old and new. And so often what we are then trying to do is to put new wine into old wineskins. We take Judaism, even as Christians, we take the Old Testament And we try to put the gospel in it, but it can't contain the gospel. It existed to set up the gospel. Jesus is the answer to the Old Testament. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And often we struggle with this legalistic approach to faith because 
We don't fully grasp what Jesus was doing in giving us the Holy Spirit. Because the gospel message, the message of the New Testament is about new life. That's why Paul would say in his letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, 16, and 17, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The gospel is transformative in its work in and through us. And the gospel is moving in and out through generations to bring the promises of God that are old as the beginning of time, true in every generation. But what we try to do is we try to take the gospel and put it into some kind of system that we've created for ourselves. And here's why we've created the system for ourselves. Because, and, and I think you could, you, you Baptists will pick on Catholics and Catholics will pick on Baptists, but we, we say, if I do these things, I'm good. And we try to be godly enough to avoid God. We try to be godly enough to avoid God. We have not surrendered to the lordship of Jesus Christ, but we believe I can live my life how I feel as long as I do these things, whether they're Baptist, Catholic, Methodist, whatever it may be, my guilt is gone. And then we have to keep coming back to those things because guilt keeps coming back. Or, or maybe it's societal justification. We believe God will bless our nation as long as enough people hold this value or do these things. And so we get into culture wars because of that. We're on a power trip and we go to church and we haven't dealt with our ego and our religion begins to feed our ego. But when the gospel really moves in and through a group of people, in that can't contain it. That can't contain it. Now I'm going out of order here if you're following along in your insert, but new wine demands a new fasting. With Christianity, the wine is new, the blood is shed, the lamb is slain. The punishment of our sins has been executed. Death is defeated. The bridegroom is risen. The spirit is sent and the wine is new and nothing can ever be the same again for us. And this old mindset of fasting out of a requirement, out of a belief that if I do this, God will bless me is simply not adequate. In the early church instructions, it, they actually said, let not your fast be with the hypocrites for they fast on Mondays and Thursdays, but do your fast on Wednesdays and Fridays. They wanted to distance themselves from this practice that was done and the way it was done to say, we're not fasting for those reasons. Now, you could easily turn that into Wednesdays and Fridays as well. But what we see here is the early church sought to distance itself from the emptiness of fasting without the losing the value of the practice. They said, we do these things now because the Holy Spirit is given to us and we want God to speak to us. We want that to be very clearly. And so what this really comes down to here for every one of us this morning is what is our motivation for our faith? What is our motivation 
for our faith. And it needs to be this response to what God has done for us, this understanding that these things don't save us. We do these things, whatever they may be, because we're saved. The author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, one through four, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's impossible for these sacrifices to take away sins. Only God can take away sin. And that is what God did in sending Jesus. And God promised us the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit now, a new people, not bound by race or geography or background, but filled with the Holy Spirit, begin to carry the gospel message. And that doesn't fit into old wineskins. That doesn't fit on an unshrunk cloth. If they're trying to fit the gospel into old wineskins, the gospel doesn't go forth to the Gentiles. If they're trying to fit the gospel into old wineskins, the gospel doesn't go forth to Asia. If they're trying to fit the, the gospel into old wineskins, it doesn't eventually go into Europe. It doesn't eventually go into America. It doesn't eventually come to Boggy Bayou, and we don't exist proclaiming the gospel right now. The Holy Spirit moves through the church and we as a church need to realize that we are not people trying to be justified by our involvement in church but we are the people of God promised the spirit of God because of the crucifixion of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus and the promises of eternity saying God move in and through us right now that's what we're doing we're not doing this because of guilt we're doing this because our guilt has been taken from us by Jesus Christ and to him we owe everything and if he is truly our Lord he is truly what makes us what justified then we say, God, you do your thing through us. I don't know what that fully looks like for this church body, but what I know is we need to be open. We don't just change for change's sake, but we need to be open to how the Holy Spirit might be moving in and through us. And we need to be celebratory that Jesus has freed us and Jesus is saving people. And we need to measure ourselves on the right things, the faithfulness of God. Now, don't hear me wrong. What has happened in America is about 30, 40 years ago, we began to say, okay, people are really religious. Let's change the music. But we didn't change the hearts. Don't think because the style looks different that you're any less religious. Don't think because the standards of how often you have to go to church or less, that you're any less religious. The question is, what is your motivation for what you are doing? And it needs to be the amazing grace of Jesus Christ. And that's the message we carry. And listen, it gets messy. Spirit might lead you to do things uncomfortable. Let me back up. The spirit will lead you to do things that are uncomfortable. I've often said that when I began to follow Jesus, I thought, God, will do all these things that I, I want to do through me. You know what? Actually, following Jesus has been, God has caused me to do all these things that I never wanted to do. When we talk about gathering together in worship, when we talk about being in community, when we talk about giving, when we talk about serving, when we talk about sharing the gospel, I just want to ask you this question. Who is Lord 
And are you listening to the Holy Spirit? And is the Holy Spirit working in and through you? And it can't be contained if we're trying to fit it into a system or religion. I was serving at a soup kitchen in Crestview several years back. And, you know, we would serve all kinds of people. And this guy came in one day and clearly he was under conviction. He had lived a rough, hard life. And people, some people kind of knew who he was. And so a lady sat down with him to talk to him one day. And he just began to open up about where he was and how spiritually bankrupt he was. And I kind of sat down at this point in the conversation. And she said, well, you need to get your right, life right. And then God will accept you. And I don't think I screamed. But what I wanted to scream is that's the opposite of the gospel. The gospel is God accepts you when you come to him and he will get your life right. And he will work on you and he will change you because the spirit is alive and willing to work in and through you. But when we begin to put God in this box and we begin to identify people by our standards of measure and what makes people right, and I'm not saying that they're altogether wrong, but we're not just focused on the gospel and the power of Christ and the centrality of the gospel and the message and how we do church, then that's what happens. Salvation is not patching up an old life. It is a whole new life. And maybe the reason we fail to see how the gospel can transform that guy at that soup kitchen is because our version of religion has just been getting rid of the guilt in our life, making ourselves better instead of submitting to Jesus who has done everything for us. And so that would be my call to us today, my invitation to us today as Christians. Submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ because what he has done for you. And if you're here today and you're haunted by faith and you're haunted by the spiritual and you have guilt, Jesus came to take on the punishment that you and I deserve for our sin. In spite of who we are, God loves us and wants us to have a relationship with him and it's not a system, it's a father whose love and mercy and forgiveness enables to walk with him. And the clear picture of this is Jesus Christ. And if that's you, come and talk to me after the service today. Text, text the word believe to the number that's on the screen. We would love to help you discover what the gospel can do in your life. Pray with me. Jesus, thank you for your grace and mercy that is on our lives Help us to understand what to do with the gospel. Help us to be disciplined because we want to see you at work in our lives with less hindrances and distractions. Help us to be open to how you might be moving in and through us as a group of people, help us to be obedient even when our flesh doesn't want it and when we're scared because we know the power of Christ. And help anyone here whose motivation for their religion, motivation for church, has just been getting rid of guilt.
to realize how insufficient our actions and our works and our sacrifices are and to realize how sufficient the work of Christ on the cross is and to accept that and respond with a life of love. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.